I want our public health institutions to be credible. And I think this is so frustrating because it just makes it really hard to build any trust that our public health institutions are doing the right thing. Welcome to The Lost Debate, unconventional media for the rest of us. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Corey Bradford. Welcome to our very first episode. And before we get down to the news of the week, I want to just take a step back and explain why we even exist, not just the show, but our entire company, The Lost Debate. And to start, I just want to tell you a little bit about myself. I grew up in Staten Island, New York, to a family that split politically and a neighborhood that split politically. And I've got people in my life that I'm either not talking to them or they're not talking to me because of my politics. And it makes me exhausted. And I've lived this divide that we have right now. And one thing that worries me deeply is that our media is driving us apart. Our media lacks nuance, objectivity, any tolerance. Uh, and I think that we need a different kind of project, a project that not only brings us together, but challenges us to listen to each other. And I couldn't be more excited than to start this journey with Corey Bradford, straight from Oxford, Alabama. Welcome, Corey. Well, thank you, Ravi. I appreciate that. And you know, when I discovered Lost Debate Online, it was really interesting because you guys were already doing something that, that I had been doing because I have a background in politics as well. But for the last couple of years, I've been entertaining Generation Z on TikTok. That's what I do. I'm semi-famous TikToker. And, um, you know, I do these satirical videos about politics and history. And I usually take stabs at like, you know, both sides. I critique the right and the left, call them out on their BS, but also, you know, point out when they may be on to something. And that's exactly what Lost Debate is doing. So it's really, you know, a unique opportunity to do this at a more serious sort of kind of journalistic level. And I couldn't be more excited to start this revolution in media with you. Well, Corey and I are both what we like to call political eclectics. So although we've worked in politics, uh, we don't, our views don't fit neatly in one side or the other. And this is a home for people like that. So whether you're an independent, you're the dreaded moderate, or you're even somebody who has strong political allegiances, but you're sick of living in an echo chamber, this is the place for you. And as background, I've worked in politics. So I was one of the first staffers for Barack Obama's campaign. And I went on to start an organization that trained over 100 successful candidates and over 1000 staffers. But I also was a principal and superintendent of a network of charter schools. And in that role, I worked alongside Republicans to protect those schools. And one thing I came away with is that our country, we have to live alongside people with different political beliefs than we have. And that means we have to learn how to talk to each other about our different beliefs and our values. Speaking of that, Corey, what are we going to talk about today? Well, we've got a lot going on today, Ravi. We're going to take a look at how the Twitterverse is politicizing this horrible Alec Baldwin accident. Wuhan China revelations. Was the right actually right on this one? And why are Trump supporters chanting, let's go, Brandon? We've got a fantastic interview with Democratic Congressman Richie Torres from the Bronx. We talked to him about a number of things, including his support of charter schools and some of the ways that he differs from other progressives in the Democratic Party. And finally, we break down the top that could literally decide the Virginia governor's race, critical race theory, and just what the hell it even is. It's a packed show, but first, we're going to get into our segment called Lost and Found, where we take the stories that the mainstream media lost, but we found. And Ravi, our set of stories today is not necessarily stuff the mainstream media lost, but they just sound lost when they talk about it. For instance, these vaccine mandates uh, regarding police officers. We know that's going to be something that's going to be affecting police departments all across the board over the next couple of weeks. And Governor DeSantis in Florida is trying to take advantage of it in a really unique way. Let's take a look at that clip. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis now said he wants to give unvaccinated cops a $5,000 bonus 
to move to his state. NYPD, Minneapolis, Seattle, if you're not being treated well, uh, we'll treat you better here. You can fill important needs for us and we'll compensate you. So, Corey, Governor DeSantis is essentially creating a hamster dam, if you've ever seen The Wire, uh, for law enforcement in Florida, in kind of a safe zone um, for the for the, <laughs> a COVID safe zone. And is it really safe, though? It sounds like <laughs> the opposite. Well, that's what we need to discuss. Right. And I think that there's this huge debate going on in this country or, or awareness of labor shortages across the country. Mm-hmm. I think that the most significant labor shortage we may be facing is not at the docks, which is important, and mm-hmm. maybe not with truck drivers, but with police officers. Yes, absolutely. And what's driving this is a couple of things. One is we've had uh, a, a a historic uh, crisis of um, understaffing of police departments mm-hmm. um, coming out of COVID and mm-hmm. June of 2020. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, you have these vaccine mandates, which are hitting police departments uh, that were already understaffed. And most notably, you have Seattle, where they have something on the order of almost 10% of their police force that are out of work right now wow. in an already understaffed police department. And then where we live in New York, mm-hmm. Uh, in a couple of days, uh, the mandate hits officers where they have they have to have gotten their first shot. And at last time I checked, there were only 71% of officers who had gotten a shot, which means there could be a huge shortage here in New York City as well. A huge crisis, Corey. Yeah, it's a huge crisis, and it's a crisis that Governor DeSantis is definitely taking political advantage of. And I just think that there's no bottom to how low this governor will go to appeal to the far right. I mean, he's literally trying to poach cops from other states, unvaccinated cops, mind you, and get them all to collect in one area. I mean, that's like a super spreader event waiting to happen. It doesn't really make any sense when you really think about police officers, they put themselves on the front lines. They're some of the people that are most vulnerable to COVID-19. And we've already seen a lot of police officers over the course of the last year die from COVID-19. In fact, four times as many cops have died from COVID-19 this year than from gun violence. So this is already a very vulnerable group. And DeSantis is really taking advantage of that. And it seems like he's willing to put the health and safety of both those cops and just the citizens of Florida in general at risk just to be the top conservative in the country. Yeah, this seems like a big signaling moment. Uh, And the politics of this are extremely dicey, uh, and it's not just on the right. Uh, Let's look at uh, John Oliver commenting on this just a few days ago. Constant refrain we hear from cops every time they kill an unarmed black person is they should have complied with commands, because as long as you comply, things will supposedly go well. But that only seems to work one way. Because when officers are asked to follow simple rules or face consequences, a not insignificant amount of them flip their shit. So you know what? If an officer wants to quit over this, fucking let them. Let the individuals who clearly don't care about public safety stop being in charge of public safety. Corey, I hear what John Oliver's saying. There is a major contradiction here worth Mm -hmm. pointing out. And I think it is really important for officers, for example, like in Chicago, to hand over their vaccination records when it's mandated. Mm -hmm. They need to comply with the law to state the obvious. But at the same time, I think he's being a little flip about what it means to have these officers not show up for duty. I'm pretty sure John Oliver is not... uh, carrying the weight of under-policing on his shoulders. Yeah, I mean, this has been a significant problem with the left, right? You've got extreme factions on the left that have been screaming defund the police. And the reality is a lot of them that are saying that are these political elites who live in really good neighborhoods, and they're not going to have to deal with the fallout of defunding the police and what that actually means. It's the communities of color and these poor communities that are actually going to have to deal with these high crime rates as a result of defunding the police. And there's a lot of polling data to suggest that most black and brown people, I think like 81% of them, don't support defunding the police. They 
simply want police reform. So this has been one of those talking points on the left that's very flawed, if you ask me. Right. And more data backs up your claims because uh, Axios came out with a poll over mm-hmm. the weekend that uh, reflects the fact that crime is going up in this country. Yes. But the two different sides of American, the political divide, have very different views about what's driving those increases in crime. So Republicans believe that the increases in crime are because of the defund movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, by a majority, Democrats don't believe that. Uh, Democrats believe that it's loose gun laws that are driving violent crime, and, and a, a very small percentage of Republicans believe that. So you have two different stories, Corey, about why we have rising crime in America. Well, of course, you know, the right and the far right are going to take that defund the police and make that the focal point of their argument. You know, Seattle's a good example of a city that did defund the police, and now you're seeing the cop crisis there, you're seeing higher crime rates there. But also you got cities like Nashville and Houston that increased funding for police and they still saw significant increases in their crime rates. So there is not a necess- there is not necessarily a definite correlation between defunding the police and higher crime rates. But to the left's point, I mean, gun sales did increase exponentially during the pandemic. So it is very possible that that's contributed to the rise in crime. But really, crime rates rise and fall in different cities for different reasons. And I don't think either side really understands the nuances of what causes those increases and decreases to crime. And so right now we're just playing this sort of kind of political back and forth instead of really taking a a more focused look at what's really causing the the crime rise that we've seen in the last year or so in this country. Yeah, it feels like a political Rorschach test because it's it's really impossible to, in such a short period of time between June of 2020 and Mm -hmm. now, to really measure what's driving an increase in crime. And and the story could be complicated. And I think, for example, it's possible that both of these stories are correct, that both defund or the larger conversation around policing that happened in June 2020 may have led to a under-policing and an increase in crime, and that increased gun sales and and gun ownership in American gun culture is driving violent crime. Those two things could both be true. They both could be false. Uh, They're not mutually exclusive. For sure. Uh, One thing that I find fascinating is the conversation around defund, right? Just like you said, there's a disconnect between the elites, even within the Democratic Party Mm -hmm. and the rank and file, which Richie Torres talks a little bit later when we speak to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's also, I think, there's more nuance to defund, right? Mm -hmm. I think that when people say defund increased crime, they mean not just decreasing funding, Mm -hmm. but the way that people started interacting with cops differently in June of 2020. Like I saw here in New York City, for example, people being way more critical of cops pulling out their phones, uh, calling uh, all cops bastards, a cab, in some cases throwing things at cops, you know, vandalizing cars. And, you know, these weren't always the downtrodden, right? I mean, yeah, like yeah. some of these are fancy kids come from Williamsburg, you know, spitting in the face of a Bangladeshi cop, right? That's yeah, crazy. And uh, there's some data to suggest that when viral videos happen, and there's a National Bureau of Economic Research paper on this that shows that when, when these viral videos gain prominence, cops uh, pull back, they interact less with the public, and crime increases. So there is some suggestion that the larger conversation may be uh, around uh, police reform mm-hmm. uh, may have led to cops pulling back. And what's sad about this is we haven't really seen that many reforms. So you kind of get the worst of both worlds. Yeah, I think with the Democrats, they got too into the defund the police talking points and forgot about the actual logical reforms that could have been made by both sides. Uh, but getting back to the vaccine mandates, I mean, do you feel that that's something that's appropriate for police officers across the board? Is that something that more cities should go into, even though we're seeing shortages in cops these days? Yeah, I do. I am a supporter of vaccine mandates. I think that I would carve out certain places like Seattle, where if you're already facing a massive crisis mm-hmm. uh, in staffing for your police department, I would be careful about these mandates. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but I think in the vast majority of cities, including New York, we could we could bear the the cost of some police officers not showing up. And I say this as somebody whose mom is a city health worker, mm -hmm. and I'm, I was really glad to see that vaccine mandate because she's of a series of risk factors. I won't yeah. say more. My mom will get mad at me. <laughs> uh, th that makes me worry about her in COVID. Yeah. And so I'm glad that her, the people around her are vaccinated. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I totally agree with vaccine mandates as well. I do believe that when it comes to police officers and police departments, it should be an individualized thing. Every office should operate based off of what they feel is best for them. And um, I think if you get to like, you know, 89% vaccinated and there's people who have legitimate religious exemptions or legitimate medical exemptions, I don't see the need to push that last little bit, uh, especially if weekly testing or biweekly testing is a part of the equation. I think that that definitely needs to be balanced, but it's just a story we're going to have to continue to watch. And um, I think the next story we're going to talk about is Alec Baldwin, terrible tragedy that happened involving him. Everybody's talking about it, but some people are really talking about it in the absolute wrong way, <laughs> like the worst Surprise. way possible. Yeah. And uh, as background, uh, there was this movie called Rust being filmed. Uh, Bonanza Creek Ranch has had two people accidentally shot on a movie set by a prop gun. Alec Baldwin accidentally shot and killed a woman named Helena Hutchins, who was a director of photography yeah. on the set. The gun was supposed to be cold, meaning mm -hmm. it wasn't supposed to have a bullet in it, mm -hmm. but it was hot, which means it did have a bullet in it. Um, and somebody else got shot as well. The director, I believe. Um, and it's a tragedy. Uh, the reason why we're talking about it is not because gun violence on the set of Hollywood mm -hmm. is particularly interesting for us, but uh, the reaction to it was notable because it revealed the worst about us as a society. Absolutely. You had total politicization where members of the right were gleeful, including Donald Trump Jr., who was trying to sell a T-shirt about guns don't kill people. Alec Baldwin kills people. J.D. Vance was calling on Twitter to reinstate Donald Trump's Twitter account so that he can comment on Baldwin. And then you had some people who I, I don't know what their politics are, but who were um, sharing old audio of mm -hmm. Baldwin fighting with his daughter, suggesting that he's a hothead who probably deserved this. There was there were also people who were talking about union organizing on the set and within an hour were claiming certain things about who was responsible and who wasn't. And I just think that this was a really sad moment where we all just need to st step back and instead of positing our theories about it, just kind of let people deal with the tragedy. Yeah, to me, it was just absolutely disgusting the way so many people on the right handled this just because they disagree with Alec Baldwin's politics or because he played Trump on SNL to take the tragedy, the the tragic death of this woman. One of And, and also, one thing people got to understand is how few females there are that work as cinematographers in Hollywood. So to lose one in this way is tragic enough. And then to take that and try to politicize it when this has absolutely nothing to do with politics, it's just really disturbing and disgusting for so many reasons. Not to mention, I mean, they're really attacking Alec Baldwin because he's been an outspoken liberal. He's been an outspoken critic of Trump. But isn't that free speech? I mean, these are the same people that try to defend free speech no matter what it is. But the minute they hear free speech that they don't agree with, they try to go against it. And again, it's just a really terrible tragedy that's just been politicized in all the worst ways by the right. Right. And, you know, if you were to politicize it, uh, I think the fact that this shooting even happened shows that, you know, guns might be dangerous and yeah, we should probably be actually, careful about who gets them. Right? It actually proves the left's point a little bit. I mean, their, their whole thing is they're going against Alec Baldwin because he's been a proponent of gun uh, of gun control. But at the same time, the fact that he, with a gun, discharged it in an unsafe manner, it actually proves that guns are dangerous in the hands of the wrong people, which is the whole point that the left has been saying about gun control. I mean, I'm a gun owner. I'm not necessarily for strict gun control. But at the same time, this is this is not like they're not proving the political point. I think the right thinks they're proving. 
happening right now. Right. And I think there are two things that happens when these types of tragedies happen on social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it remind the first thing is uh, that each side tries to fit the facts into their preconceived narrative. And I yes. think this happened in the Boulder shooting yes. uh, with much different effect, which, you know, members of the left in that example uh, rushed to call the shooter white when the shooter, it turns out, wasn't white yeah. because they just desperately wanted the facts to fit whatever argument they wanted to make instead of, and just imagine being a victim or a victim's family mm-hmm. and having to deal with all these people commenting who don't know what the F they're talking about yeah, on this ridiculous. issue while you're dealing with such a big tragedy. And then there's another phenomenon that happens when these shootings happen, which is uh, everybody becomes an expert. You know, I remember, or any tragedy, right? When mm-hmm. COVID first happened, everybody was an epidemiologist. When they, uh, the election results were being contested in the days after the November election, everybody was an election expert. Then and just a couple months ago, everybody was an expert on Afghanistan and yep. refugees. Yeah. Uh, and now everybody is an expert on workplace safety in Hollywood. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. We went from foreign policy experts in September to Hollywood safety experts in October. It doesn't make any sense. And it just really points to just the toxic nature of social media, just how toxic it's gotten and how we're just willing to take any little issue that has nothing to do with politics and then politicize it for our particular side. Well, speaking of experts who don't know what they're talking about, I'm going to try to make sense of this new revelation, uh, I think first reported in Vanity Fair, Mm -hmm. that the National Institute of Health, which is the uh, organization that employs Dr. Fauci, recently admitted that they're funding risky virus research in Wuhan province. And why is this important? Because Dr. Fauci went in front of Congress earlier this year and got in a back and forth with Rand Paul, mm-hmm. in which Rand Paul was trying to press Fauci to admit that they were funding research like this, and Fauci said that they didn't. Dr. Fauci, do you still support funding of the NIH funding of the lab in Wuhan? Senator Paul, with all due respect, you are entire, entirely and completely incorrect that the NIH has not ever and does not now fund gain-of-function research in the Wuhan Institute. And so I want to pause here to say that there's a very complicated debate happening about whether Fauci lied, what he knew, and when he knew it. And it all revolves around this terminology called Mm gain-of-function, meaning like there's a term to describe the exact kind of research that makes a virus more potent. Yeah. And this may or may not have technically been fell, fall, uh, fell within that definition. But I think the bigger point here is Fauci, when he was in front of Congress, knew what Rand Paul was getting at. Yeah. Are we funding research to make viruses uh, spread more fast mm-hmm. and spread more fast to humans? Mm-hmm. And Fauci, if he knew that this research was happening, should have admitted it in mm-hmm. that hearing because he knew what Rand Paul was getting at. Or if Fauci didn't know that this research was happening, why the hell does Dr. Fauci not know that we're funding very dangerous research around the world? So either we're incompetent or dishonest. Either way, it doesn't look good. No, it doesn't look good at all. This is a really complicated story. Uh, It involved the NIH and this other organization called EcoHealth Alliance and basically the research that they were doing. And apparently there wasn't a there was a lack of communication with funding from the NIH. Yes, funding from the NIH. The NIH didn't know precisely all the things that EcoHealth Uh, was doing. And apparently some of that research dealt with making viruses stronger. And that's what this term gain of function deals with. Uh, And really, this points to, in the larger context of everything, we've been hearing that, that sort of kind of conspiracy theory, that 
that COVID-19 was man-made, that it was the result of a lab leak or possibly even something more sinister. And that's something that we've been hearing from the right, especially the far right, for more than a year now. And originally that was like a theory that you couldn't touch. Everybody said that, oh no, that's bonkers, that's conspiracy theory. And now it seems like there may be some evidence that there's you know, maybe not necessarily what the right is saying, but there may be some truth to the lab leak theory. Yeah, which is really concerning because Facebook used to ban uh, people even making that claim, which yeah. should make us very concerned about restrictions on free speech mm -hmm. in uh, social media platforms. And they had to they had to walk that back. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think as somebody, you know, like a lot of the people who are talking about this a lot mm -hmm. tend to be people who both believe not that the, the Wuhan theory is plausible, but that it is a certainty, which yes. I think the evidence certainly doesn't support that yet. Yeah, I think it's yet. just plausible. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly a lot of murky stuff happening around sharing of data about what happened and all that mm -hmm. that should concern us all. Mm -hmm. But in contrast to a lot of those people, I want Dr. Fauci to be a credible figure. I want our public health institutions to be credible. And I think this is so frustrating because it just makes it really hard to build any trust that mm -hmm. our public health institutions uh, are doing the right thing. Well, it's hard to have an honest conversation about it because so many on the left, because Fauci has become such a major figure with them, they don't want to admit to the possibility of him lying or not knowing what he was talking about. Not to mention you compound that with the fact that there are people on the left that don't want to criticize anything to do with China, right? Because if there's any criticism of China, that starts to get linked to this anti-Asian right. sentiment, which it's possible to criticize the government of China or possibly this Wuhan laboratory without criticizing Chinese people in general. And I think that that's something the left has to understand is that, you know, we can have this conversation about this lab leak theory and what possibly happened without, you know, being racist towards Asian people. And, and it's also possible that there will be racists making some of the same arguments that yeah. you're making. Mm -hmm. And that complicates things because yeah. you don't want to be like, hey, I'm in with the racists. Yeah. But you also don't want to let perhaps the most illiberal country in the world, mm -hmm. uh, a, a, a country that's been stonewalling us in the investigation into the worst pandemic we've seen in our lifetime. We don't want to let, let them off the hook either. So it's kind of a bind. Yeah, it's a really complicated situation. We're just going to have to keep an eye on it and do some more research on that particular instance later. But coming up, we have got a story that is going to astound you. Why are conservatives screaming, let's go Brandon at grocery stores and sporting events all across America? We're gonna find out coming up next. Welcome to another edition of What Does It Mean? Where I decode the political memes that are making the rounds on Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you get your mass misinformation from. Today, we take a look at a meme trend so powerful that it was recently mentioned by a congressman on the House floor. More on that later. But first, let's take a look at this first meme. So this masterpiece was recently shared by Senator Ted Cruz. In it, we've got three people playing Wheel of Fortune, one with Joe Biden's face, great Photoshop skills, by the way. So the Wheel of Fortune board spells fuck Joe Biden with a missing you and I. And the caption reads, I'd like to solve the puzzle, please. Let's go, Brandon. Hilarious. Robbie, do you get this meme at all? I get the fuck Joe Biden part of it, but who's Brandon? Interesting question. That's why I'm here to make some sense of this, because this really doesn't make any sense without the backstory. So let's back up and talk about let's go, Brandon. It's a trend taking over the conservative interwebs, and it has its origins in something really strange and really stupid that took place a few weeks ago at the Talladega Super Speedway in Alabama. A young racer 
named Brandon Brown won his first ever NASCAR race. And in addition to the mass cases of people surviving alcohol poisoning, something else happened there that would change the direction of political discourse in America for years to come. Oh my God, this is a dream come true. Wow, Talladega, winner of the NASCAR. Oh my God, Dad, we did it, let's go! Oh my God, it's just such an unbelievable moment. Brandon, you also told me as you can hear the chants from the, the crowd. Let's go, Brandon. So if you couldn't hear it well, the rowdy crowd behind young Brandon was chanting, fuck Joe Biden. But the reporter, either hard of hearing or trying to cover for the intoxicated bunch behind her, decided to proclaim that the crowd was instead chanting, let's go, Brandon. Now, the right wing, in their infinite wisdom, has deemed this a key example of fake news. A prime example of the mainstream media lying to our faces about something we can obviously hear and see. And this event has inspired a host of new memes as conservatives across the land embrace the phrase, let's go Brandon, as a new tongue-in-cheek way of saying, fuck Joe Biden. While the maturity level of the right has sunk to a stunning, almost prenatal new low, at least their comedy skills are slightly improving, right, Ravi? I think so. I left. Okay, well, that brings us back to Senator Ted Cruz and this super professional meme, this elected official shared on Twitter. So now we know let's go Brandon really means fuck Joe Biden. And that pretty much explains why Photoshop Joe there is saying let's go Brandon to solve this puzzle. Uh, funny stuff, right, Ravi? I think so. I mean, yeah. to me, the only funny thing about this meme is the fact that Biden has the lowest amount of money of the three contestants. I mean, that was a really nice touch. At least whoever made this meme can, you know, they can math. I think this is fair game, Corey. Unfortunately, though, Let's Go Brandon has now left the world of the internet and is bleeding into real life. There are Let's Go Brandon billboards. Amazon is selling Let's Go Brandon flags. And that's not all, folks. There's a song. Americans screaming, Let's Go Brandon. Patriots screaming, Fuck Joe Biden. The media, they trying to play us like fools, yeah. You know she heard Fuck Biden, too, yeah. Wow, I haven't lost that many brain cells since the last time I walked past an Outdoor Wiz Khalifa concert. And if that wasn't bad enough, a U.S. House representative, Bill Posey of Florida, belted out Let's Go Brandon at the end of his speech on the House floor. They want you to help put America back where you found it and leave it the hell alone. Let's go, Brandon. I yield back. Weak fist pump, bro. But it's nice to see that civil discourse is still alive and well in our nation's capital. The Washington Post even had to print a retraction after it mistakenly reported that a Georgia crowd during a Donald Trump Jr. rally burst into chants of let's go Brandon when in fact the crowd was obviously screaming fuck Joe Biden. That's like the same thing that happened at the NASCAR race. I mean, the words fuck and let's don't even rhyme. How does this mistake keep happening? So Ravi, is this meme trend funny or just plain sad? I think in general, this is fair game. I think that this is America and saying fuck the president is it's pretty you know, American. I think it's an American thing to do. Now, I do think that if you're a member of Congress, I feel a little differently. Yeah. Um, and I also don't want to own whatever crazy shit goes along with this meme because I'm yeah. sure there will be some racist things thrown alongside Eventually, it. Eventually, right? But I think on the face of it, some of this is really funny and it's kind of meta in a way that the left really isn't capable of right now. Yeah, I mean, but do you feel like this is just the downward spiral of civil discourse? I mean, um, to the right's is credit- Is there anywhere further left to go down though? Uh, uh, right, is there any bottom? <laughs> I would say to the, to the, to the right's credit, uh, when Donald Trump first got in office, uh, there was a rapper, late great Nipsey Hussle made a song called Fuck Donald Trump. And so it was very similar to this trend, except instead of like, you know, masking it, they just actually say, 
said, fuck Donald Trump. Fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, fuck Donald Trump. But you didn't see politicians saying that, you know, Democratic politicians saying that on the House floors. Well, so. I remember when the representative said you lie to, to Obama yeah. and not too long ago, that was the big scandal. Yeah. Whereas now they're essentially saying, fuck Joe Biden just on like, the floor of the House. Just, and right just on the floor of the House. Sure. Yeah, uh, it just seems like they really can't handle uh, losing that election. Yeah, but on the face of all of this stuff, I think it's okay. And I think you could both laugh at it, mm -hmm. even if you're a Biden supporter, to say this is part of the political discourse that we have today. And you could laugh and also still be a supporter of Biden. That's a valid point. Well, up next, I sat down with Congressman Richie Torres, and he talks about how he differs from progressives on key issues. Coming right up. So I had a chance to go out to the Bronx and sit down with the congressman from New York's 15th congressional district, Richie Torres. And he talks about what it means to be progressive today and how there's a disconnect between the rank and file working class voters within the Democratic Party and what he views as the elites. And Richie is one of the most important voices in the Democratic Party. He grew up in public housing, not too far from where his district is right now in the South Bronx. He was a elected to the New York City Council at 25 and at the time was the youngest member of the New York City Council. He was the first openly gay elected official in Bronx and now he's the fourth youngest member of Congress. And Richie, you would think checks all the boxes of what should make a progressive superstar. But as he talks about in this interview, he's not getting all the shine from that a lot of other prominent progressives are getting, a lot of young progressives are getting, and he's gonna explain why. So stay tuned. You told the New York Times not too long ago that there's a sense that the media diminishes you. Do you mind just elaborating on that for us? Well, there's a temptation to define me in relation to others. And I feel like I have a compelling record of public service, a compelling personal story, and I have a right to be judged on my own merits, on my own terms, rather than in opposition to someone else. Yeah. Uh, so I do resent the attempt to reduce me to a caricature or fit me into a larger political narrative. Um, I insist on being my own person. You know, that article in many ways was juxtaposing you to the squad. And I guess that's what you were saying, was that that, that comparison is what you're just constantly getting. One thing you said in that article was that you're practical and not ideological. But I think based on what I know about you, I wouldn't say you are without ideology. But is it, is it that your, your ideology is the pragmatism? I'm not without ideology, but I am without ideological purity test. And for me the central value of progressivism ought to be progress. Mm -hmm. And progress is measurable in the real world. Yeah. So like one area where I am at odds with progressive orthodoxy is, is my support for charter schools, right? If, if there is a charter school that enables students of color from places like the South Bronx to academically outperform students from wealthier school districts, I would see that as a manifestation of progress. Whereas there are others who would oppose it purely on ideological grounds. So I, I'm a progressive in the empirical sense of the word, in the sense of valuing progress in the real world. You know, I would never let progressive purity be the enemy of real world progress. Why is it that white progressives have this disconnect from the rest of the party? And why does it seem that, that they're getting their way at a policy level? You know, for instance, the House cutting federal funding for charters most recently. Like, why are they winning that battle on the policy level? 
there's a racial divide in attitudes toward charter schools, right? You know, wealthier white progressives are much more skeptical, ideologically skeptical about charter schools, whereas people of color in places like the South Bronx tend to be more supportive, tend to be more willing to send their children to charter schools. You know, the reality of politics in America is that wealthier white progressive activists have more agenda setting power than black and brown people who represent the rank and file and core of the Democratic Party. Yeah. Uh, and therein lies the disconnect. And the vanguard is often unrepresentative of the masses. Uh, and the vanguard is quick to speak for the masses without actually speaking to them. You know, if there are families in the South Bronx who have determined that charter schools are the best option for their children, who am I to tell them otherwise? Like, who am I to tell them that I know what's best for your children? I know better than you do. Yeah. But that's not progressivism. That's paternalism. I I'm not indiscriminately supportive of charter schools. Yeah, but you I believe care in well-regulated charter schools. I, I care about, well, whether a school is a traditional public school or a charter school, what I ultimately care about are results. You know, are we creating progress for students, particularly students of color in, in places like the South Bronx? And there is a distinction between the Michigan Betsy DeVos model of charter schools, which is for-profit and deregulated. And that to me is an utter debacle. Right, and which no, is not what we have here in exactly New York, Exactly right. Example. Whereas yeah. the New York City model is carefully regulated, non-for-profit, and is the gold standard uh, that should be followed across the country. Yeah, with strong results. Yes, by and, and strong quality control. Right. You touch on this bigger th set of themes where, whether it's that David Shore interview with Ezra Klein or just tons of data coming out of the 2020 election, bigger conversation happening about a disconnect between the elites of the Democratic Party and the so-called rank and file, whether it's our rank and file or just working class voters generally. And it seems like this question of charters and the disconnect between wealthy white progressives and black and brown families is part of a larger conversation we need to be having as a party about who's calling the shots here. Uh, and you seem to be kind of at the tip of the spear here. Look, a, a party whose members range from Bernie Sanders to Joe Manchin, it lacks ideological coherence. Right. It reminds me of the Will Rogers quote, I'm not a member of an organized political party, I'm a Democrat. <laughs> um, but like our greatest strength is diversity and our greatest weakness is diversity. And managing that diversity has been a challenge as everyone is witnessing in real time in Washington, DC. Right. But we have to address the divide that you're touching upon. You know, one more issue is defund police. Um, I think most rank and file Democratic voters are practical and not ideological and would prefer to reform rather than defund police. And here's what I resent. If you're a white progressive activist from a wealthy neighborhood like Park Slope and you're advocating defunding police, what happens if there's an outbreak of gang violence and youth violence, right? You live in a wealthy neighborhood, so you're gonna be comfortably ensconced right. in an ivory tower, right? Whereas it's people of color who will have to live with the consequences of your, of, of your public policy choices. And so, and so that, that's, that's what I have a problem. In fact, what I would recommend is we should have neighborhood by neighborhood referenda and close the police precincts in those neighborhoods <laughs> that, that vote to defund police. But, yeah. So if, if there are bastions of democratic socialism out there that wish to defund police, let's close the police precincts in those neighborhoods. Yeah.
but I can assure you that no one wants to close the police precincts in mine. And what's interesting about this is that if I were to be in most sort of progressive circles, and I were to say I'm pro-charter and I'm anti-defund police, people would call that conservative. Yeah. Whereas that those views seem to be largely held in the pockets that are some of the most democratic pockets uh, in this country. Yeah. If how you live on there? the echo chamber of Twitter, then yes, right. you would yeah. be correct in that characterization. And so how do we break free of this echo chamber? You know, I think like obviously like people like you speaking out, but what else? Because it, it feels to me like when these June 2020 moments happen, the debate is immediately hijacked by a very small segment of the progressive coalition. And uh, there isn't like a consistent pushback that seems strong enough to give people cover, or maybe not yet, you know? I think elected officials have to remind themselves that Twitter is not the real world. It's yeah. an alternate reality. It's often a distortion of the real world. Uh, a visible vocal minority, a vanguard, can be easily mistaken for the majority on Twitter. It can be a powerful platform for raising consciousness about progressive causes. Right, You're one hashtag away from inspiring a social movement. Right. Hashtag B2, hashtag I can't breathe, hashtag Black Lives Matters. At the same time, you know, Twitter can be a cesspool and the need for approval, the need for retweets and likes can have a distorting effect on what you do as an elected official. Yeah. Um, that there's a sense in which instead of controlling Twitter, Twitter can control you. Such an impressive guy, right, Corey? Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's definitely a rising star in the Democratic Party. Should definitely be getting a little bit more press because that's the type of candidate that could really get some votes outside of New York City. Right. And uh, we talk about so much more in our extended interview, which is available on our YouTube page. Uh, he talks about affordable housing and he gets in greater depth on a number of issues, including what's stopping Democrats from attracting enough voters. So you can check that out on our YouTube page. Awesome. Looking forward to that. We'll be right back. What, what's actually happening? What's actually happening? So as we round the bend in some of these critical races happening around the country, a strange thing is happening in Virginia, probably the key battleground in 2021. The percentage of voters in that state who rate education as their top issue has nearly tripled in just the past few weeks. And as a former school principal and superintendent, this initially got me really excited. Perhaps we're gonna have this substantive discussion about how to improve kids' lives and how to help our schools, but that's not what's happening. What's happening is a debate around this concept that you might have seen all around the news, this concept of critical race Theory. All right, the battle of critical race theory in our public schools has become a major flashpoint in one place in particular, ground zero, the Virginia governor's race. That brings us to our segment, what's actually happening with critical race theory. What is this critical race theory or CRT as they say? Well, 
its origins go back 40 years to law schools around the country. And it was really like a term only used in academic journals. And it meant uh, that racism is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice, but it's something embedded in our legal systems and in our policies. And so an example of this is in the 1930s, there was this concept of redlining when the government would draw lines around areas that they deemed poor financial risks. And often they were drawing these lines based on race. And then banks would refuse to offer loans to black people living in those neighborhoods. And those patterns live on today, even if today's policies are facially race blind. And so the concept seems pretty cut and dry, right? No. The problem is when people talk about critical race theory today, they're grouping many things together, whether it's the media or our politicians, they're taking critical race theory and they're lumping in actual critical race theory, which is what I just talked about. They're also lumping in new terms like white fragility and anti-racism, old terms like identity politics, culturally relevant teaching, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And they're also including uh, a teaching of America's historic flaws. So they're putting this all together and you need a degree in sociology or history even to keep up with all of this. And some of these concepts overlap and many reasonable people can disagree about each of these different things. So for example, I think it's really important to teach about America's complicated history and its dark history, but I'm also pretty skeptical of the book White Fragility, for instance, and don't think that belongs anywhere near children. Problem we have is that neither side of this debate is being particularly disciplined or precise when they talk about this concept. So I'm gonna attempt to demystify this concept for you as the audience, and I'm gonna start by talking about the critics of critical race theory, it's mainly on the right. And when I say the critics of critical race theory, I mean the critics of all the things I just talked about and how they lump it together. By and large, their biggest criticism is that when people use all these terms, they focus on group identity over universal, universal shared traits and values, meaning they focus on race and gender instead of what makes us American, what makes us live in the same community, what makes us have certain belief systems. Uh, they also are worried that there's discrimination against white people embedded in some of these theories. They also worry that there's a relativism about the way we use language and that all terms that we use are somehow instruments of power, where the most extreme version of that that I've seen is that some people are advocating that the teaching of, for instance, the scientific method is racist because white people came up with the term. Uh, they also believe that uh, some of these critics, that teaching people some of these concepts means you're teaching them to hate America. So those, those are just some of their criticisms. And an example of the, the you know, in, in the minutia, what they're worried about is in Cupertino, for example, there was an elementary school where a third grade class was forced to, quote, deconstruct their racial identities and then rank themselves according to their power and privilege. I mean, what could go wrong here? Uh, but for all of the, and, and, and to be clear, that example, I couldn't find too many examples of stuff like that. I think what is, uh, I think a bigger issue when we look at that sort of ranking of all the different terms are uh, theories about how we use standardized testing and data to drive instruction, which are sometimes linked together with critical race theory. And Ben Shapiro recently uh, went on Bill Maher and talked about this. Let's roll that clip. The fifth largest school district in America, Clark County, just decided that they were going to lower standards with regard to testing because they wanted to alleviate disparities in outcomes. That is an outgrowth of critical race theory. Can you draw it, a straight it, line to it? Yes. 
hundred percent. Because when you say that the meritocracy is an outgrowth of white supremacy, and then you suggest that I'm somehow denying that slavery took place or that no, your great, great, great grandfather was a hero because I'm saying that I want people tested when they are in school to see if they are good at school. And then what you're purporting to push that is just nonsense. I'm sorry, just sheer bullshit, Malcolm. It's just bullshit. No, there's a lot I disagree with Ben Shapiro on, but actually he and I are probably in agreement on this particular criticism, which is that there are ideas that are prominent on the left, sometimes being grouped together with critical race theory as a terminology. You know, Ibram Kendi, for example, who wrote How to Be Anti-Racist, they're they're critics of standardized testing, of the use of data to drive instruction, or even acknowledging a so-called achievement or opportunity gap, who call all those ideas racist, meaning acknowledging the realities of our schools. And I'm with the Shapiro's of the world who think that we need that standardized testing, we need that data, we need to acknowledge the gaps in our schools in order to improve them. That's an important debate, right? And actually has strange bedfellows. Like I have traditionally been on the other side of the political spectrum as Shapiro. But the problem for the Shapiro's of the world and the critics of critical race theory is that uh, when people talk about doing something about it, they go too far. So Yunkin, for example, who's the GOP nominee for the Virginia governor's seat, says he wants to ban critical race theory. And in his ads, he has, uh, for instance, one of his most recent ads, he had a woman who has uh, historically advocated for banning the uh, Toni Morrison book, Beloved, from schools. And there are 27 states that have introduced legislation to, quote, ban critical race theory, and eight states have passed legislation to ban it. And some of these laws are really crazy. In Wisconsin, for example, um, they passed a bill that prohibits the use of over 90 uh, items and terms in schools. You'd need a PhD to even interpret this law. Uh, Florida's school board issued guidelines saying that you, quote, may not define American history as something other than the creation of a new nation based on, uh, largely based on the universal principles stated in the Declaration of Independence. Translation, uh, you can't teach anything other than the aspirations of this uh, country. It's like saying if you're in a relationship with somebody that they can't acknowledge any of your actions, they can only talk about your promises. That's absurd. In Tennessee, the state where I used to run schools had a terrible law as well. They were banning teaching anything that could lead an individual to, quote, feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress because of their race or sex. Uh, so these are problematic laws. And some people who are critical of some of the subcomponents of critical race theory. So some people like me who've been critical of white fragility and anti-racism, et cetera, people like Thomas Chatterton Williams and uh, Camilla Foster uh, took to the pages of the New York Times to say, look, we have some problems with some of these other concepts, but these laws uh, are problematic because a fair reading of our history is gonna make people uncomfortable and we need to preserve the ability to, to tell an accurate history of the United States. And they talked about how if this law was on the books in Germany, they wouldn't be able to teach, for instance, about their terrible history with the Holocaust and, and have their students uh, acknowledge that history and do something about it. And so these laws go too far. They are dangerously imprecise. Uh, and it is much more common for states and districts to mandate what is taught, that's what we call curriculum standards, versus what isn't taught, which is really unusual to, to prohibit things within the classroom. Uh, and this term critical race theory, it's grown to include such a broad category of things that it's basically meaningless. So when people use the term, you really need to drill them down as to what they actually mean by it. And the tragic thing here is that somewhere in this debate, there's an important discussion 
about how we discuss privilege, how we group students together, how we think of diversity. Um, but the laws being proposed here go way beyond any of that to mandate an inaccurate reading of American history and to sidestep the important conversations we should be having as a society. Yeah, I just learned a lot. I mean, I don't, I didn't know what critical race theory was, uh, but some of this just seems really extreme from both sides. I mean, when you've got the left trying to teach third graders to rank themselves based off their power and privilege, <laughs> that sounds ridiculous. But it also sounds ridiculous for Tennessee to pass a law saying that you can't talk about anything that makes you uncomfortable uh, about race or gender. I mean, that means you can't talk about women's suffrage. That means you can't talk about slavery or anything like that. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense. I think both sides are just taking this way too extreme and they're just using our schools as a battlefield for their culture war. Right. And I think in this case, I was not able to find enough examples to merit, I think, a hysteria around this. Like, mm -hmm. although there are examples of pedagogy, like that third grade, grade class mm -hmm. that I didn't like, it doesn't seem like there's this epidemic that's being described. Mm -hmm. And I think what's really going on here is that the suburbs are these battlegrounds. Yes. So there's this county I didn't mention called Loudoun County in Virginia, which is mm -hmm. the critical battleground mm -hmm. in Virginia. And it's one of the most affluent counties in America, but it also happens to be the county in Virginia that was the last to integrate. Oh, wow. And it's the site of all this stuff. And I don't have enough time to go into it, but mm -hmm. essentially I think the GOP strategists view an opportunity in the suburbs to, to push on this issue. And I think that's what's going on. And I think if they're successful on Tuesday, you will see this as a playbook around the country. Absolutely. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our first episode. Thank you all for sticking around with us for so long. Uh, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Check out our podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your podcast from. We're going to be doing this every Tuesday and Thursday. And I just want to thank you all for watching. Thanks to our wonderful crew, all our writers and researchers for putting this together. We had a lot of fun and we will see you guys next time.